I'm Kay. I'm a bulimic and a compulsive overeater. Hi. Pardon me? Um, you know, I can see the clock right there, so I'm cool. But if, if I ignore it and if I go over, just let me know. Okay. Um, so, I've been in programs since 1988. I have, this August, it'll be 25 years of abstinence from bulimia. And, um, and for the most part, uh, compulsive overeating and obsessions about food and body, they don't even play a part in my life anymore. <clears throat> but I still come to these meetings and I come religiously. This is my touchstone. It's my, you know, uh, church, synagogue, whatever you want to call it. This is where I find God and this is where I get reminded that I'm not in charge which I need to constantly be reminded of in order to be able to keep my abstinence um, and keep my serenity and my sanity, really. Uh, I am an addict through and through. Like, <laughs> I remember reading in the big book and reading in the 12 and 12, you know, when I first came in, and it still strikes me every time I read it. Um, the descriptions of the agnostic, or excuse me, of the uh, addict, you know, our immaturity, our self-centeredness. Uh, our selfishness and you know all of those things absolutely apply to my personality type and today I don't use those words as a beat-up job at all really that's just like I have enough distance from it and enough self-love to be able to say you know that's my default and I don't live there most of the time actually I'm, I'm usually an incredibly kind loving compassionate person but it's still my default um, <clears throat> and so I want to tell you a little bit about my history. Um, like I said, I've been in program since 1988, so it's 26 years. And um, uh, <laughs> I'm 53. I came in when I was 28 years old, and um, and I wanted to die. I was living in New York City at the time. I was working on Wall Street. I had my dream job. I was making more money than I ever imagined making. Um, and I was actually fairly thin at the time, uh, but I was crazy with food, absolutely crazy. Um, I lived in Soho in New York City, and I used to walk from my job down on Wall Street on Friday night. That was my ritual. On Friday night, I would just binge my brains out and, uh, and puke all night long and then the, spend the rest of the weekend recovering. Um, so I'd leave my job. I'd stop off at like two or three different delis on the way and, you know, get various things at the delis because I couldn't get it all at one place because that was too humiliating. And then I'd go home and I'd start eating and watching television. And um, I was also a heavy smoker at the time. And uh, so I would be by myself doing all of those things that just completely numbed me out, you know. And the throwing up was like, it took me over the top. Because for me, it was really an act of violence. I've met so many people in these rooms who are bulimics, and they're much more accomplished than I am in that arena. For me, it was like it hurt, you know, physically hurt. Like I, my eyes would get all bloodshot, you know, I would, my face would get all red. Really, like my body had to recover from that violent act. And, uh, 
And so, like, all day Saturday, I just wanted to kill myself. I would just lie there with my cats, like, lying on the couch with my cats on my stomach, smoking, watching TV, and, like, recovering. And, um, and then I'd start the cycle all over again, which was I worked in a job that I felt like I wasn't good enough for, and that if they really knew me, they certainly wouldn't let me work there anymore. Um, the people that I knew, you know, I was lively and fun, and, and you know, on the inside, I was dying. And, um, and, you know, I was probably born an addict. It runs in my family. All my siblings are alcoholics and drug addicts. I don't know if it is genetically, you know, part of our makeup or because of what happened to my family. And I just want to share a little bit about that. I won't get into it too much, but it's important to my story. And God knows I have the time. <laughs> so um, I'll just tell you a little bit about what, uh, where I come from. I'm the youngest of five children. Um, when I was four years old, my dad was a cop for the LAPD, and um, when I was four, my father and mother were both shot in the head one night in the middle of the night, and uh, my mom woke up, she had a splitting headache, she went in there, she saw blood all over the place, she called the cops, they came, and then they noticed that she too had a wound in her head, and to this day, nobody knows exactly what happened that night. But it set my family on such a path of just destruction. Um, I was four. My oldest sister was 16. And um, uh, she had already gotten pregnant in high school. It was 1964. There was no abortion or birth control that was readily available. And, uh, and, my, and she was already married and pregnant at 16. She became an alcoholic. The second sister, a year later, got pregnant and married. She also became an alcoholic and a drug addict. My brother, who was 12 at the time, has already died. He died from alcoholism. Um, and then I have a sister who's a year and a half older than me, who she doesn't say she's an alcoholic. Uh, I have uh, an issue with her drinking. Let's just put it that way. And, uh, and her two sons are both, in my opinion, have, an issue, have a problem with drinking. I have a problem with their drinking. And I have a nephew who's already dead from uh, suicide. And uh, so anyway, so that's like my family. It's like we are so massively impacted by the disease of addiction. And I didn't choose alcoholism or drug addiction, although I certainly flirted with all of anything I could get my hands on, truly. I mean, I was so experimental. <laughs> Um, but my real love was, or I don't know if you call it a love, my real <clears throat> default was to obsess about my body, to try to control my life by what I put into it or didn't put into it, um, and what I tried to do to it. And I, in the back of my mind, always felt, until I got into program, from probably the time I was, gosh, I don't know, maybe 10 or 11, uh, I felt that if I looked different, that if I were thinner, that my problems would be different. <laughs> I don't know if I thought they would go away. I think I did. You know, it's like that kind of magical thinking. I thought that my life would be different if my body was different. And um, my first memory of that was we used to watch TV all the time. And 
I remember my mom got this big bag of M&M's and I had this thought that if I don't eat those M&M's tonight, maybe I'll be thinner tomorrow and maybe I'll be better tomorrow. And, um, and you know, cut to years in uh, middle school and high school of trying to be thinner. Um, I was never very successful, though, because I so needed the food. I mean, for me, it was a daily thing. I needed just that extra bit in order to get through. I was so consumed. I didn't even know it at the time. If you had asked me if I hated myself, I would have thought, no, you know. But now when I, in hindsight, I look back, I mean, I was so ashamed of my family, of where I came from, of who I was, um, and... uh, and I needed the, the food to coat it and the cigarettes at the time. So, uh, so that was all during high school. Meanwhile, I'm becoming a absolute, you know, know-it-all and uh, overachiever. I was everything in high school. While I was miserable at home, secretly smoking and, you know, overeating every night, at school I was perfect. I was the president of the class every year. I... Straight-A student, blah, blah, blah. Got into a great school. First kid in my family to finish college. Um, because I thought that was my ticket out of that life, is that I was smart, and if I could, you know, get ahead in that way, then maybe I would escape from this sort of trailer trash, you know, life that I had assumed I came from. And even now, I tell you, I, say, I look back on that, and it's what an exaggeration. You know, I mean, this disease, like... Tends to exaggerate, you know. My family's not trailer trash, like, but in my mind, like, that's what I said about them, you know. And, um, you know, and I look back at my mother now, and oh my God, I, I hated her, absolutely hated her, you know. She was mentally handicapped from that moment on, from when I was four, and, but back then nobody, like, would put me anywhere. They just left me with her, and. Um, and I would fight with her so desperately. I still wanted her to be different than she was. She was handicapped. She never worked after that. She lived off a police pension. Um, she just sat there in front of the TV, drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes and watching Dodgers games. And I, like, I hated her for that because I looked around at all my friends and they were, I, we lived in this middle class, you know, down in Torrance, California, and, um, and I was just so ashamed. Uh, and then I hated myself for being so ashamed because I thought, what a little piece of shit you are to be judging these people. And, and everybody in my family was like, she has a bullet in her head. You know, how can you be so mean to her? And like, I was the horrible person because I was so angry because she wasn't what I wanted her to be. It was like this nasty spiral where everybody was pointing fingers at each other and everybody hated each other. Um, so anyway, so cut to college. I learned how to... Uh, eat and throw up and that became like my new ritual um there were times in college where i got all during high school i was probably like 20 to 30 pounds overweight i never what i never dated i never felt like any person would ever be attracted to me because i felt so ugly and so fat 20 to 30 pounds overweight i mean really you know i was just so consumed with with craziness and um so when I discovered bulimia, there were periods where I was able to actually get thin. And, um, and, but then, they, you know, it lasted for a week or so, you know, and then it cracked up again because I was never a successful bulimic because it was so painful. Um, 
<sighs> so I, um, gosh, all during my college years, after my college years, uh, it just started to escalate and escalate. And I ended up going to New York City. I uh, went to business school and I started working down on Wall Street. And, um, and all of the same stuff that had propelled me to be the straight-A student that this or that was still going on, all the self-loathing, all of the shame about my past and my history. So I meet this guy in the training program at the bank that I was working at who uh, came from a rich family. His dad was like the CEO of this big corporation, and uh, he'd grown up educated at boarding schools in Switzerland. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, he's like everything I want to be. If I can attach myself to him, I can be, I'll be okay. And, and I was also kind of thin back then, so I felt like, you know, whatever, I could get him. And um, so I, I started this relationship with him that was like up and down. And, um, and every time I wasn't with him, I was binging and throwing up. And finally, I couldn't take it anymore. I broke up just because it was so excruciatingly painful. And, uh, and a friend of mine back here in L.A., I was in New York, said, you know, I've heard about this group called Overeaters Anonymous. And I'm like, is that like a 12-step thing? Because you know? <laughs> my oldest sister at that point had gotten into Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and I had been horribly judgmental of her doing that because I thought it was a cult. And that, you know, he was just exchanging one addiction for another. Like, I didn't really see much progress in her life. And truthfully, she went, she did the 12 steps, and she never went to a meeting again. Um, and she was just a, a dry drunk um, and a bunch of other various addictions. But so anyway, so she told me about Overeaters Anonymous, and I'm like, wow, okay, I guess I am that desperate. I am that desperate. So I went to my first meeting. Uh, and it was a really small meeting. There were like eight people there, and the guy who was qualifying or sharing was crazy, truly like nutty and like saying all of these really strange things. And I thought, oh my God, this is this is you know full of crazy people. And I said, but let me let me give it one more shot. I don't know like where that came from. You know, let me give it one more shot. But I said, I got to go. I got to try one more meeting. So I went to another meeting. I think that very day, I was so crazy and desperate and I went to another meeting and this was a huge meeting there were like 50 people and it was in a hospital on the upper east side and the woman who was sharing was a bulimic and back then this was 1988 bulimia wasn't as talked about and discussed and you know like I remember going to the library at NYU and looking up the word bulimia to see if that's what I was because it was like it was just not that well known. Anyway, so this bulimic gets up there and starts talking about everything that she does. I mean, graphically, you know, throwing up in the door, all this kind of stuff. And I'm sitting there listening to her and I just started weeping. I couldn't believe that there was somebody out there who did what I did. And, like, and, it, and she was telling me that it was a disease. Like, that it wasn't, she wasn't at fault. It wasn't because she was weak, which is what I had always told myself. That's why I couldn't lose those 20 pounds. That's why I couldn't stop throwing up, because I, was, I had a weak character. That's what I thought. And so here's this woman who I didn't think had a weak character and seemed incredibly honest and humble. And she was telling me about what she did. And everybody in the room is nodding. So anyway, so I'm crying. And, uh, and I was so embarrassed to be crying, because it's still, like, I'm just... Uh, it was so important to me to look good on the outside. And I, 
I thought, these people are going to know that I'm identifying. So right as soon as the meeting ended, I raced out of the room so nobody would talk to me, so they'd never see me again. And this woman, like, races out after me and grabs me in the elevator, and she's like, hello! (laughs) And uh, so we started talking, and uh, and she became my first sponsor. And, And so this is New York, 1988, and back then, it was a different program than it is today. And she was extremely intense, and, which appealed to me because I, too, am extremely intense. And she put me on a regiment, which I loved. I had to call her every morning at 6.15. If I missed that window by five minutes, I, was, I couldn't call her because she had other sponsees lined up. And all we did was talk about food. And... Um, and talk about like what I ate and how to eat more healthily and how to like get on track food-wise. She didn't want to hear about my emotions, um, and that was okay for me for like the first three or four months of program. That was cool, you know, because I learned from her and from other people how to eat because I didn't know how to eat. I knew how to binge. I knew how to like be on a diet. But I had no idea just because I'd grown up with my mom and like we never ate normally because she wasn't normal and I didn't know how to eat. So anyway, so she and other people in program taught me how to eat. I would, I would call people. I'd say, what do you have for lunch? You know, what, what does a lunch look like for you? And especially, and this is what I tell my sponsees, find somebody who is the size you want to be and ask them, what do you eat? <laughs> how do you maintain that size? Because I had no idea how to do that. So anyway, so I started learning how to eat. And because I have a very obsessive nature, I, surprise, I started eating obsessively. And I ate the same thing for, bre- for breakfast every day. I ate the same thing for lunch. I remember eating at my work cafeteria. I'd have a turkey sandwich with mustard on wheat bread and a pippin apple that I would dip in sweet and low. That was my lunch every day. Dinner, I had like three options, and that was it, you know, for what I had picked and chosen from how people ate. And I started to get really thin. <laughs> and like the first time in my life, I got really thin, and I kept it off for like a month or something, you know? And I was like, oh my God, this program is magic. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm the thinnest I've ever been, you know, I'm a nutball, which I didn't really know, but like. I was like, I felt so good physically, you know, for the first time. I felt like I was in control. Um, But at that time, I was also smoking. So I decided, even though my sponsor told me, don't try to quit smoking right now, just like ease into this, you know. She even had the sense to know that. But I'm like, no, I'm going to be perfect, you know. Because just an aside, and I know this isn't a Smokers Anonymous, but I just, I'm sure all of you can identify with this kind of obsessive thinking. I was so concerned that other people would think I was a loser because I smoked because in my little world of investment banking if you smoked you were weak you know so I didn't want anyone to know that I smoked so what I used to do is I lived in the studio and I didn't have a closet I'd wrap my clothes in plastic so that they wouldn't smell like smoke and I had breath mints on me all the time and I'd sneak out at lunchtime and smoke and then you know eat the breath mints and come back in like like I was fooling anybody, or that anybody even cared, you know. But this was my little obsessive world, you know. I had to look absolutely perfect on the outside in order to be acceptable in that world. And um, so anyway, so I decided I'm going to quit. I followed this, whatever, I won't get into that, it's not that kind of meeting. But anyway, I quit, and 
Then the food really hit the fan. I mean, oh my God, trying to be abstinent as well as not having my other crutch. I went to a meeting a day, sometimes two meetings a day. I started to go to Al-Anon because I assumed that I come from a bunch of alcoholics, so let's throw that into the mix. And I mean, I was a complete like nutcase for program. I was a zealot. And, um, and I got through it. <laughs> and, you know, so my recommendation to anybody who is new, at least for me, like I poured myself into this program. I absolutely poured myself in. And, uh, and it saved my life. And uh, I'm so happy that I was able to quit back then. You know, even though it was so, I was so white-knuckling it, it wasn't a spiritual experience at all. But somehow I got through it because, of, you know, of the program. So, but anyway, so shortly after that, I started to, like, come up against this sponsor, okay? Because I uh, assumed that the program was now going to save me, right? And that she was going to save me because I had had this abstinence. I'd been able to quit smoking, you know, like, now I'm going to tackle every problem in my life. And this program is the solution. And my sponsor is the spokesperson for this program, right? So I started to become very disappointed in her because she couldn't talk about emotions with me. And so then I started, I got into therapy, which if you need it, do it. You know, it says in the big book that we seek outside help. You know, this program cannot be a panacea for everything. Given my history, I needed it. I needed to do some serious emotional work outside of these rooms. Um, so I started to do that and I started to sponsor shop. And like that whole period of program for me was uh, it was very rocky, you know, and I see people in here who are like in years two through ten, whatever, and it's like, oh, man, it's so hard, it's still so hard, blah, 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 and it's like, for me, it was still really hard, you know, I had a lot of learning to do and a lot of growing, and, but here's what my, here's the way that I thought about it, is that this program is going to teach me how to, it's not going to take away my problems, what it is, what it will do for me, and this is what I believe the promise is, is that it's going to allow me to do it abstinently. It's going to allow me to live my life with some grace, abstinently, and to be able to live through all of the shit that happens in my life, you know, without eating, so that I actually register it, I adapt, I change, and I move on, as opposed to eating over stuff and then staying stuck in this spiral, which is what I did my entire childhood. I have a feeling I'm going to eat, so now I just hate myself because I ate, and the issue is about my eating and my hating myself, and not about what actually happened that triggered the eating to begin with. So I made this in my mind. I decided that my covenant with my higher power, that was my step three, was my abstinence. That that was my part, you know, if I could give God my abstinence and stay that way, I felt that I had a faith that I would be able to get through anything, you know, because I knew that I would actually feel it, you know, God doesn't give us more than we can handle, I would feel it and I would change, because that's what this program is about for me, it is about change. I can't go on being me, <laughs> you know, the old me, if I want to have an abstinent life that is serene. Because the old me made trouble everywhere, <laughs> with myself, in my own mind, in all of my relationships. I didn't know how to live cleanly, you know, and I've had to learn in this program, you know, over the past 26 years, and I'm still learning constantly how to do that, you know, how to um, live life on life's terms. Is, which is one of the sayings in here that I just love. That's what it's all about. You know, I got, 
I got married in this program. I got divorced in this program. Um, and it was messy. It was not good. And I wasn't particularly, and I look back on it, I'm not proud of how I was at the end of that marriage, you know, but I continued to go to program and I continued to learn and change and grow. You know, I, I give myself that space now. I don't have to be perfect. You know, I just have to keep trying, right? Progress, not perfection. And um, so I just want to talk a little bit about, um, about where I am now. So 20, whatever, six years into this program. Two days ago, my 18-year-old son graduated from high school. And, um, and he's going off to college in a couple of months. And I am getting married to my, he will be my second husband, <laughs> in six weeks' time. And who I am today, you know, at 53 years old, versus who I was when I first came into this program, it's just like incredible the amount of growth. You know, and some of it is just maturing and getting older, but the majority of it is what I've learned in these rooms. And the parenting that I've got from my fellows and from my sponsors and from going to meetings and from working the steps. Um, I This week has been really sad for me because I love my son so much and the awareness that he's leaving in a couple of months you know I've been sort of crying intermittently you know for the really like probably two or three months now but just the other day I like had this major crying jag and and I'm so grateful to be here at this meeting right now and for you to have asked me Nikki because I was thinking on my way here this totally grounds me you know being here, remembering what it was like, and how much I've grown and changed, and how rich my life is, is just like such a gift. I feel so grateful to be reminded of that right now, you know, here in this room, and to let my son go, you know, and not hang on, and let him live his life, you know, and be reminded that there's so much more of my own life to live. If I think of where I was at 28 versus where I am now at 53. Um, and then I think of the next 25 years, you know, of where I could be at 78. It's like, it's really amazing to me. You know, I, there's so much in this culture about youth and, uh, you know, beauty of the whole LA thing. But what I try to remember and what I, what me and my fiance talk about is that every age has its moments, you know, every age has its beauty, and I need to just be happy being 53 with a son who's graduated. Like, I don't need to be back in the years when he was five, you know, and needed me because this age has its own beauty and its own time, you know, and like the natural progression of things is for me to just let him go. You know, I've prepared him to move on and go on in the world. And now it's like it's my time again. You know, it's my time to be with me and, um, and to focus on me and my new husband. And um, so anyway, I just always I want to stay present. I just want to be here and now. I don't want to be regretting the past. I don't want to be looking at the future. I just want to be here and now and loving today. <sighs> Gosh, I haven't shared for this length of time. It's such a long time. Okay, I've got ten more minutes. 
what can I tell you guys about? Um, so okay, so let's talk about let's talk about the steps. So and how I've actually worked the steps in the program. So as I said, so way back when I started sponsor shopping because the woman who was my first sponsor uh, couldn't take me to where I needed to go. And I realized that in the course of like the next 10 sponsors, that what was happening for me is that I was wanting something that no sponsor could give. Like I thought that a sponsor was supposed to be like, you know, direct conduit to my higher power. You know, that they were supposed to be like the mother I never had, you know, the therapist the spiritual advisor, the, all of these various things. And you know, a sponsor can only give you their experience, strength, and hope. And, um, and I also realized that I had incredible trust issues, you know, in order to be able to actually, you know, trust another person and open up and let them be who they were, you know, without me judging them. And uh, so the sponsor that I have right now, I think for me, things really started to change and I really started to grow up and realize all these things at the time of my divorce, which was in 1999. So it was like 15 years ago. Uh, as I mentioned, my, my marriage ended really badly. And I was going to meetings, but that's about all I was doing. I hadn't had a sponsor in a while um, and uh, I wasn't doing much to work the program. So at the time of my divorce, I recommitted to this program in the way that I still work it today. I got a sponsor who I still have, so now I guess I've been with her for probably 14 years. And in working with her, there were so many times where I would listen to her and she would give me, you know, her experience, strength, and hope, and sometimes advice, which I was able to discern, like, what's advice, right? And that, you know, take what I like and leave the rest. And she gave me a lot of bad advice sometimes. <laughs> I would, and I would listen to her. Like one time, I remember when my child was really young and I, there was so much drama because we were divorced and he wanted to be with his dad more than me and my heart was breaking and blah, blah, blah. And I was talking to her about it and she's like, okay, maybe you want to consider, you know, not having 50-50 custody. Maybe you want to have, and I'm like, you're out of your fucking mind. She's my language. Like, like, I'm going to do that. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't have a child, you know. And, and I realized, though, you know, in talking to others, she doesn't know. You know, she doesn't know everything because she doesn't have that experience. And I can't expect her to know everything. But what she does know is the 12 steps. And she works a kick-ass program. And to this day, I love her, you know. And she's coming to my wedding. And we're, you know, I don't talk to her all the time because I don't need it all the time. But when I do, she's there for me. And I've kept that consistency and that intimacy in my life with her. Um, I also picked up working the steps um, where uh, I had left off with all the other sponsors. And we actually finished the steps with this sponsor. Uh, we, she's like, where are you, Kay? And I had, had gone through so many sponsors. And, and, you know, and every time I start back at step one, you know, so those of you who, like, keep changing sponsors, like, that's a good way to not actually get all the way through the steps. <laughs> you just keep going back to step one. So she's like, where are you in your steps? I'm like, I'm at step eight. She's like, okay, boom, that's where we are then. Show me your list. You know, so I actually, I had to pull my list out from, you know, working with the old sponsor, and I refined it, and I actually went through, and I made all of my amends on this list with her guidance. And it was amazing. You know, and I worked steps 10, 11, and 12 with her on a consistent basis. And, um, and to this day, I mean, I still, I write 10 steps all the time. Um, 
And I really, I also did an, a relationship inventory with her, which was incredibly helpful. And uh, I did a sexual inventory with her. I've done a work inventory, um, trying to find patterns in the different areas of my life so that I can isolate them and I can work steps six and seven on them. And actually, that is where I want to spend the last bit of my time, which is step six and seven. Am I done? You might be. Is that wrong? This might be wrong in our usual time. It seems like an awfully long time. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. That's okay. I don't know what it's supposed to be now. It's question and answer? No, no, no. I know it's a good day, but I'm asking you what the times are supposed to be. Okay. Yeah, it should be done. It should be done? Yeah. Okay. Can I wrap up this one statement I was going to make about step six and seven? Okay. All right, because actually this is what, when I was on my way over here, I thought this is actually what I want to share about. For me, if I look at all of the steps, they're all critical, all important. But if you've got your favorites, my favorites are step six and seven. And um, because that to me is where I can change, right? If I can identify what is making me uncomfortable in a situation, either angry, frustrated, resentful, etc. If I can isolate that thing that's causing that in me, then I know what to work on. I can actually think about what is the spiritual alternative to feeling that way. And I can pray about it. And prayer, you know, step seven, humbly ask them to remove our shortcomings. That, truthfully, for me, is like magic. I, if I can be very clear about what it is that I'm doing that is causing me to trip right now, and I hold it up to God, he really does, you know, God for me is a he, he really does remove it. And I've had that happen to me over and over and over again. And that's what I really work on in myself and what I try to work on with my sponsees. Isolate what it is that's making us uncomfortable. That's where the power is. And then bringing a higher power in to remove that thing. <laughs> and that's it. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, this is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions uh, are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. And please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast that's being recorded right now. In the back. Sure. Okay, so the question was, and I'm just repeating this for this thing. Uh, the question was uh, to talk about uh, doing my fourth step and what happened in the days that followed. Like reading it to your Reading it to my sponsor. Yeah, fourth and fifth step, sure. Okay, so um, I wrote many fourth steps, um, and I shared them partially with many different people. Uh, and this is just for me, because I had such a dramatic childhood, I really thought that, <laughs> that like my fourth step was going to be where I shined in this program. Like that, <laughs> that anybody who read it or heard me, you know, reading it would like feel incredible sympathy for me and blah, blah, blah. And so whoever I would read it to, I was never satisfied with their reaction to my fourth step. This is just my experience, okay? So what happened was I didn't actually finish my fourth step until I'd moved out to Los Angeles and uh, right before my son was born, actually. And um, 
And what happened was, the process was, it was long. Oh my God. We had to get together like four or five times for two or three hours each time. And she sat there and listened to my four step. God bless her. <laughs> and she would throw in her own stuff. And, um, and this is just me, because it's all my opinion and have what my experience was. When she would throw in her stuff, I would think, wait a minute, my stuff's more dramatic. But she would, her stuff was like even more dramatic. So I like, it was a very humbling process for me to actually share my fourth step with this other person. Like I realized, you know, every, everything's different for different people. But for me, it was about letting go of my story, you know? And like, I had always been tragedy's child. And in doing that fourth and fifth step, I started to let go of that because I really started to realize I'm not the only one out there with this, like, you know, horrific childhood. And I started to, like, detach from that being my identity. And I think that that fourth and fifth step, you know, to this day, it's like it's really critical in allowing me to let go of the past and be who I am now. I am so not tragedy's child. If you met me on the street or in my workplace or whatever, you would never know that I come from the background that I come from because I don't identify with it anymore. It doesn't, it, that's not my calling card. Thank you, Kate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, six and seven was the end of Uh-huh. Can you give us a specific example of Yeah. Um, I have a lot of sponsees. And uh, so I'm constantly working on it with them, as well as on my own stuff. Um, but this is how it works for me. When I, I, I go up against my boss, here, I'm just going to use my boss as an example. Okay, I have this boss who, uh, I adore him. But we constantly butt heads with each other over various things. And he really knows how to push my buttons. So, um, just recently, I felt that, he shamed me in this meeting in front of all these people. And so, and then my reaction was to storm out of the meeting. Okay, so I call my sponsor and I'm like, oh my God, you know, I'm so embarrassed, blah, 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 you know. And so I wrote my 10 step, right? So this is how I do it. I resent my boss because, you know, he was disrespectful to me in a meeting because he blamed me when actually it was somebody, blah, 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 you know, all the reasons why. Okay, what it affects. It affects my uh, ambition, you know, in that workplace, and it affected my pride and my ego and my personal relations because I'm pissed at him now, right? And we're normally really tight. So now, here's the magic, and this is where six and seven come in. What is my part in this situation, right? And this is, it's, it's always, always a revelation to me, you know? I mean, so my part is that I need to be his favorite. That's what came out of this latest 10 step. I need to be the number one person that he relies on. My opinion needs to be the most important one to him. If that doesn't happen, then I feel like I'm going to get fired, that he doesn't like me, that I'm going to get abandoned. It's like all of this old crap comes up, right? So now my job is to be of service in my workplace, to let go of that need to be number one. I don't need to be number one to be safe anymore, you know? I never really needed it, you know, or maybe I did when I was, you know, way back when, but like, that doesn't serve me anymore, you know? Um, I acted out, you know? I stormed out of the meeting, right? So I need to be a grown-up and I need to apologize for that. So, but the magic for me there, in, and the reason that I was able to just say, oh man, I'm really sorry, I was, a, you know, I was really immature, sorry about that, is that I got, what, what was running me there? What was running me was fear, 
you know, fear that I'm going to be abandoned, fear that I'm not going to be, you know, his favorite, so that I'll be safe in the world. Yeah. Can you talk about what you do when you get into body obsession? Or is something that you don't know fit when you were experiencing this in program? Okay. Um, honestly, I don't experience it anymore. I really don't. I mean, I still want to be thinner. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I, I still, like, I have a wedding dress, and I'm, like, you know, hoping it looks good and everything. But the truth is, I, I don't care anymore. I honestly don't care. So, how did it used to manifest for me? Um, I used to dress. Well, you know, I still kind of do, actually, but it means something different now. So, I used to dress, like, in really loose clothes like kind of what I'm wearing right now (laughs) but like back then it was to hide the fat you know like I used to um, dress very un like unfemininely you know and stuff because I whatever I felt like I was fat and that I was unattractive Um, you know I don't know I mean I guess that's sort of it for me on that you know I I used to overexercise you know it it was all kind of wrapped up in, in just the disease of compulsive overeating so the question was, it was, so when you get into that obsessive thing, okay. how did you work program around that to get out of that? It was, you know, I'm kind of old school, and because um, I was brought up such a long time ago in this program, and when I am in that place, when I'm worried about how I look, I know that I am being in self-centered fear, right, which is a character defect. Anytime I go there, and... There's actually a sponsor in this room who I used to talk about this with all the time. <laughs> we shall remain nameless. <laughs> but, when, <laughs> but whenever I am in that place, I know that I'm not in the light of the spirit. Like, I am in the disease, right? And what that tells me is that I need to do work to get out of it, which is to pray. You know, God, relieve me of my self-centered fear. It's not serving me right now. It's not serving anyone around me. And if my job is to be of maximum service in the world, which is part of that, like, covenant with God thing that I have going, I know when I'm in that head, I can't be there, you know? And it's only going to lead to bad. Like, <laughs> I get that to the center of my being now. That gets me nowhere, You know, and my job is to get out of there as quickly as possible, and I do it through prayer. And if I need to talk to somebody else and turn it over, I do that as well. Yep. Step five, you know, six and seven. Is that it? Sorry. Okay.